I want to begin by reading a quote by C.S. Lewis, and I've got a couple of C.S. quotes, C.S. Lewis quotes in my message this weekend. Um, he, he says this, and it kind of goes with the passage. We're going to look at James 5 this weekend. And uh, let me read the passage, or let me read it to you. He says this, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I think he's absolutely correct. Uh, many Christians, uh, a, a lot of what we have to understand and what James is going to show us is that life, the Christian life is lived, and sometimes it's a, it's a big decision, it's a big choice. But more than often, the Christian life is little day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions where we set the path, uh, where we make moment-by-moment choices. Somebody has said, heaven and hell is under every bush. And what they mean by that is, Your choices are either leading you closer to God or farther away from God. You're going in one direction or the other. You're not remaining at the same place. We think we are, but we're not. Um, There's always a drift in the Christian life. And oftentimes we think it's the big choices that direct our lives. But if we look more closely, it's those little day-by-day small uh, obediences that will change us. Um, So this weekend... We're, finishing, we're going to finish next week in James, but we're in James 5, and he's going to talk about three, I want to call them little sins, because we call them little sins. They're not, you know, it's, we call them little sins, but they're not little sins. We, we generally do that, though. And we're going to look at these little sins, and we're going to see that they're, they're, James doesn't take them lightly, and neither should we. So I, I want you to join me, uh, because James shows us that... Uh, Three areas where our faith is constantly tested. And we tend to make them little things, but they're not little things. They're big things. So I want you to join us, and I want to give a shout-out to the Rorschach campus. If you're watching online or whatever, I want you to just join us. We're in James chapter 5. So let's begin. Uh, The first area he talks about is the area of money. Notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says this, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So one of the questions that people sometimes ask is, well, is he talking to Christians here? Because this seems pretty rough. I mean, this this is pretty rough. And the answer is, yeah, I think he is. Because all the, if you go back in the context, he's talking to Christians all through this. All through this letter. He's not saying, okay, for Christians, I'm talking to you. now. No, it's all, he, he, the context is all Christians. But here's the point that James is making here. He's saying you cannot be a hoarder. You cannot be super self-indulgent and still say that I am, uh, you know, I am protected, I'm a Christian, and I'm saved. If your behavior is that way, you can't live in the comfort of your salvation. 
Those two can't live, work together. And, and, and he wants us to be uneasy, saying that if you're hoarding, if you're, 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 you're cheating your laborers out of their wages, if you're, if you're, you're, you're spending on luxuries for yourself and, and never giving anything away, you cannot be safe in your salvation. You, you, you can't take that. You can't have it both ways. Uh, he's saying if you're hoarding, you're not growing into Christ's likeness. And if you're not growing in Christ's likeness, you have no right to consider in th- thinking yourself as a Christian because Christians don't behave that way. That's what he's saying. It's pretty direct. Now, what he wants his words to be is a wake-up call to us because, again, what we do, we do is we tend to make excuses. Now, think for a minute with me. Stop for a minute. Why did Jesus die for you? Some people say, well, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead to pardon me, to save me from my sins, which is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Certainly he did. He saved me from the consequences and the the condemnation of sin. That's why he died on the cross for me. But is there more to it than that? Is there more to that? See, I think the Bible also clearly says that he didn't just save you to save you from sins, he saved you to make you into his masterpiece. That it wasn't just to save, save you so that one day you could go to heaven. He wants to transform you here and now. He wants to change you here and now. So Jesus didn't save you so you could just go to heaven. He saved you so you could be transformed, so that you could save others. Now, Houston, we have a problem because we have this acceptable sin within the church of hoarding. We do. Jesus didn't save you to hoard. He saved you to share. He's he's calling the people who have the means to bless others who don't. And he tells those hoarders, he says, you should weep and wail. Now, what does he mean by weep and wail? That's pretty strong language. And what he's saying there is if you think about this, you follow it in the Old Testament, weeping and wailing was a sign of repentance. It was a sign that you realized that you were doing something wrong, that you were going to do a 180, that you were moving away from God, and that you wept, you wailed about it. You were, you know, put on ashes. And in a sense, it showed that you were repenting. So he's calling people to mourn uh, and to to, uh, take it seriously. Now, some of you may be here and you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Uh, What is hoarding? I mean, because... Is saving money hoarding? I mean, does he mean I have to give it all away? You know, what is he talking about here? And I want you to understand that he's not, he, he's, he's not talking about saving money. He's talking about hoarding money. For instance, look at Proverbs 6. You can write this verse down. I think it'll be up on the screen. He says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in the summer and gathers its fruit at harvest. What is he saying there? That the ant is smart enough to prepare for bad times. Saving. Okay? So saving is not a bad thing. And, and many times the writer of Proverbs have used the characteristics of animals and insects to say they're smart and we should follow their lead. In a sense, they're saving. So that's not a bad thing. That's not what he's talking about. But it is critical that we see the line between prudent saving and self-indulgent hoarding. What's the line between prudent saving and self-indulgent hoarding? What is the line? We need to discern whether we're hoarding our money up or putting it to good use. There's a critical difference between 
living a basic life of necessities and convenience and moving into the area of unnecessary luxuries and self-indulgence. That's what James is attacking. Now, just the fact that I'm talking about this and you're, being, you're a little uneasy shows you that we've made this kind of the acceptable sin. Nobody goes there. Nobody addresses that. Nobody calls me on that. Nobody asks me about how I'm spending my money or what I'm doing. So you're probably asking, well, Pastor, what's the line? How do I know? Uh, the question comes in, how many cars do I need? How, what kind of car should I buy? How big of a house do I need? Uh, what should my clothing budget be? Uh, you know, you have all these questions and you say, how much is too much? How far is too far? What is hoarding? What's the difference between taking care of my needs and hoarding? Uh, what is it? Where, where I'm, I've gone? And really, it comes down to this. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever said that? Had you just go and just you just do it? Have you ever stopped and said, "Wait, wait a minute. Do we really need this? Do we really need this? Are you asking that question? Are you are you are you calling yourself to do this? See, we're, we're, we we better be looking at everything in our lives and ask ourselves: Do I really need to spend my money on this, or should I be leveraging it for His kingdom to bless others? Now, you might be thinking right now: Whoa, boy, James, Pastor Matt. Uh, I'm not sure I want to live my life that way. Well, that's the point that James is making here. See, this is the life the Christian has been called to. This is not an option. This is not for the, the base Christian, the super Christian. The super Christian does this, the base Christian doesn't. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying this is what a Christian does. Jesus, uh, James is saying that we can't hope to find our comfort in Christ if we're not willing to walk away from the power of riches. Why? Because what we'll do is we, if we hoard up riches is we will trust in the riches rather than God. Have you found that out? That the more that you have in your cupboard, the more cars you have, the more luxuries you have, the more that you have, the, the, the less you rely upon God. You can probably remember in your own life where times are tight and times, where are we going to pay it? How are we going to do this? And you felt like we're praying about this. We're praying about this. And God came through and supplied. And it changes when you have more. So there's a balance. And I can't tell you what, uh, what it is for you. I can only determine what it is for me. But I will tell you that if you get it right this, this side of heaven, you will be rewarded in heaven. If you get it wrong this side of heaven, you will be judged when you get to heaven. Absolutely. That's James's point. And they're harsh words. Harsh words. Notice what he says. He says, he says you're fatty, fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? That's his point. His point is, what are you doing with your riches? Are you hoarding them? Are you, are you, are you spending them on yourselves? Or are you looking how you can release them? Um, and then he says something interesting. And he says that, that when you hoard the stuff around you begins to rot. It begins to rust. It begins to corrode. It begins to fail. And I was thinking about that, and I think that's absolutely true because what happens? When you hoard, you know, think about people who hoard things, and you, we probably all know some people who have hoarded things, and, and it's always someone else. It's never us, right? Uh, but we look at that and say, oh, yeah, I had that a long time ago. I don't know if it works or not. It's all rusty. It hasn't been used. 
that's what happens when things don't get used and they're not uh, that we, we have this, we have this old car, this old motorcycle, this old bike out here, and we've not ridden it. We're not used. Why? Because it's just sitting there. It's rusting. It's corroding. It's, it's, it's rotting. See, things rot, things rust, things corrode when they're not being used. And when we hoard things for ourselves, there's things that could be used that aren't being used for his kingdom. And what he says is that will not just rot those things, it will rot us. That's his point. See, you can take uh, the money that God has stewarded you. Uh, and I use the word steward because I want to understand that it's not our money. It's his money. He stewarded us. And you can use it to wake up a person's heart for eternity. You can use it to help families find hope and healing. You can use it to provide something for children to, to grow up in a, in a, in a, in a family where, where Jesus is loved. You could change the course of a life for eternity uh, instead of looking. And what we tend to do is we tend to look at people and we say, boy, I wish I had that house. I wish I had that car. I wish I could do that. I wish I could do, take that vacation or whatever. Instead of doing that, instead of looking and comparing ourselves as falling short of others who we, we deem to be above us, we instead leverage our resources and we look around the people who are needed around us and say, I can help that person. I can help that person. I can do something here. I can do something here. We should do something here. And when we begin to do that, we stop hoarding and we begin releasing. And when we begin releasing, we're doing something that's very, very good for his kingdom. So if you're not, let me, let me say this. This is where I'm really going to get in your face. I've been here for 20 years. This last August 1st was 20 years for me. So now it's time for me to get in your face. Okay? <laughs> if, if, if you're not tithing, you're not even in the game. Can I say that one more time? If you're not tithing, then tithe is 10% of your income off the top. You give it to God. It's all his anyways, but you give it to God. It's less than a tip, really, when you think about it. Uh, but essentially, it's 10% of your income off the top to God. That's tithing. If you're not tithing, you're not even in the game. Now, when I make a statement like that, you're going to respond in a couple of ways. Um, some of you are upset with me. You say, there it is. I brought a friend and they're mad because all the churches wanted you. I didn't tell you what to do with it. I just said, this is the, the biblical principle. It's a biblical principle for tithing. It's absolutely in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. It's there. If you don't want to see it, you don't have to see it. But it's there. And I'm just warning you because one day you'll stand before the judge. Okay? Now, here's the point. I was thinking about why, and I never like to talk about this stuff, but I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of making my peace with it, as you can see. And I was thinking about, people say, well, people get upset because churches always talk about money. Pastors like me always talk about money. Well, I don't always talk about money. I rarely talk about money, but I am today because it's in the passage that we're going through. So with that being said, one of the reasons I think people get upset is because they're not doing it. That's why they get upset. You know, I think about this. If you're here today and you're tithing, you're doing 10%, you're giving 10% of your income, and, and listen, I don't know where you're at. You say, well, I could never give 10%. I'm not in a place, but I'd like to get there. Okay, then start with 2% or 3% and add a percent every year. In 10 years or 7 or 8 years, you'll be there. But my point is this. 
If you're already giving 10% of your income and I say to you, you need to tithe and you should be giving 10%. If you're doing that, you're not mad at me. You're not upset with me right now. You're going, well, duh. That's what you do. Of course, that's what you do. I'm not upset. That's, it, it's like your doctor saying, you should exercise. Well, duh. Yeah, I know I should. Now, maybe I won't do it, but I know I should, right? I mean, you're not upset with your doctor when he tells you that. So my, my theory is that people get upset who basically are hoarders. And they're struggling with that. And they're getting called out. Now, I'm not calling you out. God's word is because you're not going to stand before me. One day you're going to stand before God. But what James says is very interesting. He says we all but all backwards. What we do is we hoard in the last days. And what we ought to be doing is giving away in the last days. We should be giving it away, not hoarding it. All right, so... This is one of those areas we go, this is, you know, this is my sin. Nobody ever asks me about it. Nobody ever challenges me with it. So it's one of these acceptable sins. I don't know what you do and you don't know what I do. And we never, you know, we never ask those hard questions because it's kind of like private area, but it's still, it's an acceptable sin within the Christian life. James says, you can't live there if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't do that. You can't be, take the comfort of your salvation and be a hoarder at the same time. It won't work. Here's the second one. This, this is, if the first one didn't bother you, this one will. Okay? All right? Just telling you. He, he said, we're, we're tested with our patience. Notice what he says, starting at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord is coming near. Notice the next phrase. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, an example as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What is this patience that James is warning us against? James is warning us against a spirit of restlessness and irritability, a complaining spirit, an unhappy spirit, a spirit of being upset with the way things are and the way people are treating us. Now, in this, he talks about two different ways that we need to have patience. First is patience with others. The second one is patience with God because those are part of life, right? So how are we impatient with others? He talks about that in verses and he says, don't grumble against others. Be patient. Now stop for a minute because he says something very interesting there. When people bug you, when they annoy you, when you find just, just you have a daily annoyances, you know, you, what James, what, notice what James doesn't say. He says, don't hit them. Don't smack them. Don't run them off the road. Don't uh, pull a gun out and shoot them. Don't do that. Okay? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Don't grumble. Oh, I wish you hadn't have said that. Because that's one of my favorite pastimes. 
I love to grumble. I want to grumble. I want to look for reasons to grumble. He doesn't say, hey, you didn't hit him. You didn't run him off the road. You didn't kill him. You didn't flip him the bird. You didn't do all those things. Good for you. You win. No, he says, don't. Grumble about it. Don't grumble about it. Oh, wow. You know, um, we all grumble. Not to grumble against others is hard to do. Grumbling is just complaining. It's finding fault in others, griping, nitpicking. Um, you know, we have a lot of words for this kind of behavior, don't we? <laughs> we, have, we justify it. We think, well, at least I didn't hit him. <laughs> right? But what does he say? He says, when you grumble, the judge is standing at the door. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't want the judge to be standing at the door because I'm grumbling. You know, why does, why does James... Why does James have to make grumbling such a big deal here? What, what's going on here? Because I believe grumbling is showing a deeper issue. Grumbling is showing something that there's something terribly toxic within you. Let's, let's, just, let's just say that you have a doctor's appointment this week and you go into the doctor and he says, okay, you know your, high, your blood pressure's a little high and you seem a little, you know, kind of like, tense and you know what's going on in your life well I'm grumbling a lot I think the doctor would go well you need to stop grumbling that's not healthy that's not a good thing to do even your doctor will tell you you know it's not good for your physical health Um, so here's my other kind of lengthy quote by C.S. Lewis so C.S. Lewis was a British author and wrote a number of a mere Christianity number of books and he wrote this book called The Great Divorce The Great Divorce was basically a group of people from hell decided to take a vacation in heaven. And it's an interesting concept because the, the idea there is that there are people in hell that, that if they had a whiff of heaven, they would, they would say, oh, well, that's what I want. That's what I want. And, and he says this. So, so uh, in, in the book, Lewis is uh, with the, on this bus from hell with some other people. And he's, he's observing with a, another preacher, um, George MacDonald. And uh, George McDonald is the guide. And Lewis asks, asks McDonald why there's this woman who's constantly complaining. And he, 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 Lewis asks McDonald, why is a woman like her? I mean, all she does is complain. I mean, it's not a, she's not a serial killer. Why is she in hell? Why in the world would a woman like that be in hell? And this is what McDonald says. He's, or, this is the, the, the dialogue between them. He says, I am troubled, sir. Uh, said I, because I, th- that unhappy creature, meaning the woman, doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to even be in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, talkative old woman who has got into a habit of grumbling. And one feels that a little kindness and rest w- and change would put her all right. And then McDonald says, that is what she once was. That is maybe what she still is. If so, she certainly will be cured. But the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. I should have thought there's no doubt about that. Aye, but you misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. 
But how can there be a grumble without a grumble, grumbler? And then he says this, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. It begins with grumbling mood and you're yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may, with that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. What Lewis is saying here is that grumbling is pointing to a deeper issue. And that's why James is addressing it. Now let me ask you a question. When you hear people grumble, Christians, when you hear Christians grumble, you say, well, I know they shouldn't, I know I shouldn't, but it's not a big sin. And James says, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. If you were to go into the hospital and they were to take a scan and the doctor says, we found a small spot on your liver and we think it might be cancerous, the small spot doesn't give you any cause for, oh, okay, that's fine. You're worried. And what James is saying, and what C.S. Lewis is saying, and what God is trying to say to us today is, grumbling is showing there's something deeper going on in our lives. The cure for grumbling is this. If you begin to understand how much you have pushed God in your own sin and rebellion, you will start to have more patience for others. When you know how bad you were, you begin to show others more grace and mercy. Go to Isaiah 6. Write that passage down and go to that passage. Just read through that. Because at one point, Isaiah was able to see the glory of God and he began to see who he really was. And it transformed him. Here's the point I want you to see. When you grumble, you've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten grace. And you can only repent yourself to patience. You can only repent yourself to patience. Well, let's talk about the impatience with God. We don't have a lot of time. Let me move rather quickly. So basically, he talks about Job and he talks about the prophets. And, and he basically says that we need to have patience with God. We need to have patience with others and not grumble. And we can grumble against God too. But we, can, we need to have patience with, 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 uh, with God. And he gives the prophets as an example. Now, why does he give the prophets as an illustration? How are they an illustration of how we need to hang in there with God even when life doesn't seem fair. Even when God seems to be telling us to do something that goes contrary to what we think we should do. Even when the path seems hard and, we, and God says, you need to go down that path. You go, I don't want to go down that path. You need to go down that path. It'll be okay. You need to trust me. And you, you say, I don't think I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I want to trust you. And we have all those thoughts going on. So what is it, what is it about the prophets? The prophets hung in there even when their life went south. Let me just talk about it. I mentioned Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God and he says, Woe, me, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, he says, As I compare myself to others, I'm okay. But when I compare myself to God, 
I fall so far short. I can't even, I, I can't even imagine how far short I should fall. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm a mess. I'm an absolute disaster. And, and so God cleanses him and he forgives him and he repents. And, and so then God says, uh, I have this mess. I need a messenger. Who will go for me? Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, I will go. Send me. And for the next 20 or 30 years, he, God tells him what his message is. Here's what he says. He says, you're going to go and you're going to preach for me. And you're going to be the worst preacher that was ever preached. There's no one's going to repent. No one. They're going to they're hate your message. They're going to they're reject you. You're going to be an absolute failure. But for the next 10, 20, 30 years, I just want you to preach and you're going to be an absolute failure. Can you do that for me? How about Jeremiah? Uh, he preaches to the people for 20 years. The people have been taken into captivity in Babylon. And they think they're only going to be... And he, Jeremiah says, uh, captivity is coming. He tells them about it. And they didn't want to hear it. And then they're, now they're in captivity. And somebody, a prophet, says, oh, it'll be a short time. God's going to deliver you. And Jeremiah comes and says, no, he's not. God's not going to deliver you. You're going to be in captivity, captivity for a good long time. So plant your gardens. Make friends with the people there. Change your community. Because you're going to be here for a long time. What kind of message is if you read If you read along in, in Jeremiah, um, I had it written down here somewhere in my notes. Uh, they basically, uh, I, Jeremiah 11, there's a plot to, to kill Jeremiah. <laughs> What's God's point? He, they had horrible messages they had to take. They had no success. They, they were saying things that people didn't want to hear. And God says, remember the patience of Job. Remember the patience of the prophet." prophets they hung in there with me when life didn't go well when life went south they hung in there with me what was God's plan to help millions of people to help us tonight help us this weekend to help us this week to help us understand that God will ask us to do some really hard things that take us in dark places for the good of others and we are reaping the benefits of the prophets and Job and many of you have gone to the book of Job and you've read some of the prophets when you've gone through those dark times and you're encouraged by them. You realize that God hasn't abandoned Job and he hasn't abandoned his prophets. But they were willing, in spite of the fact that nothing was going right in their lives, they were willing to remain obedient to God in the midst of these trials. One of the greatest uh, d demonstrations of confusion and magnificence, I think, is the cross. Think about the cross. People around the cross, the soldiers, they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. The religious leaders thought he was uh, just basically uh, uh, a danger to them more than anything else. His, his own mother and some of the women thought, oh, what are we going to do? That We never saw it come. His disciples abandoned him. And, and so most of the people said it's an absolute failure. Nobody gets crucified except a criminal. And here he is hanging to endure. What a mess. And yet many of you wear crosses around your neck because it's a symbol of something beautiful something amazing something transformational that has happened so the greatest defeat from that perspective from that day at that moment is the greatest victory that we can hold on to we're going to talk about the cross in a moment in our communion time and so we think about the cross and we think about the, the, just how it's misunderstood when we look from our perspective we marvel we're in awe we're amazed we're overcome with grief 
all at the same time. So he says, patience. Patience with others, don't grumble. Patience with God. And, and we, we, we say, well, I'm not a patient person. I've had a hard day. We make excuses. James says, no, no, no. It's not acceptable. Let me give you one more. We're tested with our word. Look at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear by, neither by heaven or earth, by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Again, the strong language. You get the point. Now, how many times have you said, oh, Bob, you know, you need help moving. I'll be there Saturday. What time? Eight o'clock? Okay. And you are thinking maybe in your head, I'm not going at eight o'clock and I'm not going to go help Bob. But I want to say something nice to encourage him. Now, James is almost directly quoting his brother Jesus who said exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. So what was Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount? Was he saying, you know, you should never put your hand on a Bible in a court of law and swear that you'll tell the truth. Is that what he's saying? No, I don't think so. Was he saying that you shouldn't swear in your mother's grave and, you know, swear in the gold of the temple or whatever it is? Um, Have you found this? I have. When people start swearing on everything that's not bolted down and they say, I'm really telling you the truth, the more they do that, the more, less I trust them. The more I think that they're not telling the truth. Here's what you need to know. When you are speaking, Jesus is there. When you say to a person, you give your word to a person, you sign a contract to a person, you agree to something with a person, and then you go back, Jesus is ready to tap you on your shoulder and say, you know I'm here, right? You know you just said that in front of me. I was standing there. You thought it was just the two of you, but there was three of us there. I was there. I heard it. Do you know that you just gave your word and you're breaking your word? Do you know that? So, that's the point. Jesus is basically saying is there is no, there is no um, shades of truth. There, when you make a promise, you, you keep a promise. Um, when you say, I'll do it, you do it. There's no levels of integrity. There's no levels of truthfulness. Just truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you don't know, what if I don't know? Just say, I don't know. Final point. We generally downplay the seriousness of these three little sins. We say, well, you know, it's my money and, and uh, it's kind of private. I don't really like to talk about it. Okay. G- James says to us, you fatten yourselves up for the day of slaughter if you're hoarding. You say, well, patience, I haven't socked anyone, I haven't gone off on anybody, I haven't shown rage or anything like that, um, so I, I should be good. And James says, have you grumbled? Yeah. Then the judge is standing at the door. Well, you know, I give my word, and I try to keep my word most of the time, but sometimes, you know, things happen and you can't keep your word. And... James says, all you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Again, these are little sins, they're minor things, they're not big things, we're not out murdering people, we're not out doing terrible things, we're just doing little things. 
hidden things, acceptable things within the church. James says, no, 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 you don't get to do that. So on January 12, 1997, there was a, two Swiss men decided they, they wanted to uh, be the first ones uh, with uh, the technology to take um, a blimp, a hot air balloon, basically a hot air balloon, uh, around the entire world. Now, the, 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 the whole project cost about $1.5 million to do it. And they, sh they got up into the higher atmosphere, and all of a sudden they had a leak. And it was a, a serious issue. And they, it got worse. They tried to fix the problem. They couldn't fix the problem with the, um, the um, gas leak. And inside of the pressurized cabin and so they had to ditch ditch the whole thing and they found the wreckage of the balloon that they were trying to take and they found out that one part that cost a dollar fifteen failed dollar fifteen yeah, it was a small part just a little thing a little thing the whole thing went down James is saying you might look at these as little things, but they will take your whole life down if you don't get a hold of them, if you don't look at them that way. You can't make excuses for these things. Now, the only way you get on track is that you bow before the one that James mentions, who was condemned for you, the innocent one, Jesus. And when you bow before him and you say, Jesus, my money, Jesus, my patience, Jesus, my word. And he will take one of those areas and say, okay, let's do something there. Let's stop that grumbling. Let's stop that hoarding. Let's stop that lying. That he will change your life. Only Jesus can change your life. He's the only one. Let's pray. Father, help us, because without your help, this is just more work to do. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring to our hearts the area that we need to work on individually. He probably already has. We found conviction in a certain area. Maybe it's not the money area. Maybe it's not the grumbling area. Maybe it's just the word. Maybe it's all three. I don't know, but you do. And I pray that you would work in each person's heart as you see fit for your glory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.